Hey everyone, it's Ryan here, host of the Pursuit of Happiness podcast, where I get to have conversations with some amazing people from all over the world who have stories to share, experiences we can learn from, and knowledge in areas we can use and apply to our lives to make us better and happier people. Each episode has a different topic, but all geared towards helping us along our own pursuit of happiness and helping us understand this journey we call life just a little better. We'll touch on everything from mental health to nutrition, diet, fitness, travel and adventure, relationships, and much, much more. Along this journey, I'll also experiment and apply some of the advice and information from my conversations to see how it affects me along my own pursuit of happiness and then report back to you all. Now, don't forget, if you enjoy this episode or any other episode, take a moment to subscribe, leave me a rating and a review. It's greatly appreciated and while also helping get these great conversations to even more listeners. With that said, on this episode, I get to welcome Dana Gowen, who's a wildlife outreach specialist with the Wolf Conservation Center located in upstate New York. So truth be told, Dana pretty much has the job that I want, except she is way more educated and knowledgeable in the area of wolves and wildlife, as you are about to find out. Now I've had a fascination with wolves ever since I was a little kid, and I knew I really wanted to speak with somebody from the Wolf Conservation Center. I couldn't have been more excited for Dana to accept my invitation to be on this podcast, but I honestly had no clue how awesome this conversation would be. The Wolf Conservation Center seems like such an amazing place to be. Not only that, I fully support everything they stand for with wolves and wildlife, and so do the millions of people that follow them on social media. Yes, I said millions. Their content is awesome, plus they have live webcams where you can watch the wolves all the time. It is super cool. So yes, obviously we talk all about wolves in this episode. We look into their mystique, their importance in the wild, and Dana does an amazing job of correcting how the media portrays wolves. Now one thing I love about the Wolf Conservation Center is they actually raise these wolves to be released in the wild. So Dana goes into detail about how they do that and how they use technology to track the wolves to see their progress. Now, if you're like me, you're listening to this introduction wondering, how in the world do I get Dana's job? Well, I ask her that because I'm sure I'm not the only one who really wants to know. Now, before we get started in just a moment, I also wanted to take a second to plug their website, nywolf.org where you can donate to the cause or even adopt a wolf yourself, which I did last year. They sent me a beautiful photo of the wolf I adopted, Nikai, a stuffed wolf and a certificate with his paw print on it. It's super cool. I actually have it in a frame. So go to the website and you can browse all of the wolves, see their names and pick one and symbolically adopt one. It's such a great process. I highly recommend it. I will actually be adopting my second wolf this year. Okay, okay, with all that said, I know people don't put on a podcast of wolves and want to listen to me talk. They want to get to the good stuff. So here we go. Let's welcome Dana Gowen of the Wolf Conservation Center. Hi, Dana. How are you doing today? 
I'm great, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Absolutely. This is a very uh, personal passion of mine that we're going to get to. As far as the wolves go, um, I've always been a sucker for wolves. I've always loved them. Um, I'm showing you right now tattoos on my arms as far (laughs) as, um, yeah, so these are my two huskies. But uh, I've I've always been a Huskies because I've been a fan of wolves and what they are and how cunning they are and how smart and intelligent they are since I was a very little kid. And uh, I guess maybe I just knew you couldn't have a wolf. So I got a Husky, which is kind of like the closest thing to it. But uh, yeah, so we're going to, we're going to dive deep into, into wolves and how special they are, but we're also going to dive into you working at the conservation center in upstate New York and everything you guys do for the wolves. And I'm, I'm super interested because I was telling my girlfriend this morning, I said, you know, when people retire, they want to go swim with the dolphins or whatever, right? That's what mm-hmm. that, they want that to be their job. Yeah. So that when I retire, I want to go play with the wolves. I think that's, <laughs> I'm going to do that. But here you are currently doing that. Yep. Um, so I really want to talk to you about how you got to be where you are today. And yeah, go for it. Let's hear it. All right. Um, so like you, I mean, I've always loved animals, dogs, cats, any wild critter I could encounter. Um, you know, as a little kid, I tried to keep worms as pets <laughs> as one does. Um, so, you know, I always knew that I wanted to work with animals, but really when you say that the only option presented to you is that you're going to be a vet. Um, and mm-hmm. I love vets. I had, I've had many animals. I foster animals, but I knew that that wasn't exactly what I wanted to do, but I wasn't sure where that left me. Um, and then I realized that, you know, I could combine my love of wild animals and, you know, just kind of my passion for all of this and pursue that as a career. So, um, I studied wildlife conservation in undergrad. Um, my summer's home, I actually interned at the Wolf Conservation Center. So that was kind of my first, um, introduction to working with wild animals. Um, and, you know, during undergrad, I participated in lab research. I was analyzing snow leopard scat samples, um, quickly realized I don't love working in the lab. Um, following graduation, I then bounced around doing a lot of um, seasonal research positions for wildlife. So my first one out of college was working with the National Park Service in Southern California, and I was tracking mountain lions every day. Um, wow. Yeah, it was amazing. It was an incredible experience. Um, I went to South Carolina and I was working on a rabies study with raccoons and opossums. I went to Illinois and I was um, studying uh, bobcats, coyotes, and white-tailed deer. So I really got to kind of get literal hands-on experience um, in how research is conducted, collecting data, um, collaring animals, tracking them. And around the same time that I finished that last research position, um, I had always kept in touch with the Wolf Center. And they had started to think about expanding um, to offer local wildlife programs because where we are in the Northeast um, and throughout the Northeast, there are no wolves any longer. Um, And so we're teaching about wolves, but there was a little bit of a disconnect between that and the animals that are actually around us. And so um, we created kind of a local wildlife program and a wildlife outreach program to, in addition to our wolf education efforts, teach people about the animals that actually live in our area um, with a big emphasis on Eastern coyotes, because Mm. we found that 
a lot of people love wolves and they absolutely despise coyotes and mm. they have a really important role in the ecosystem as well. So that's kind of how I ended up here. Um, I've now been on staff for two and a half years. Mm. Um, and I'm so happy. I feel so lucky that I was able to kind of come back and, you know, give back to my local area. That's yeah. So cool. Like I said, that'd be like one of my dream jobs in all honesty. Um, where did you grow up? So I grew up, um, just probably 20, 25 minutes North of New York city. So I'm in Westchester County. Um, and so I'm about 40 minutes from the Wolf Center. So definitely a commute that's worth it. Um, and so I had, hadn't even realized that the Wolf Center was nearby mm. um, until uh, back in the day, we had a traveling ambassador wolf and he actually came to my high school. <laughs> um, he was not visiting my class. So I excused myself to go to the bathroom <laughs> and I ran to where this wolf was and sat there completely awestruck. Um, and that's how I ended up, you know, pursuing an internship at the Wolf Center. So um, I was lucky that I was located quite close to where the center is. Do you still live there or did you move closer yeah, to the center? Yeah, I'm still, yeah, no, I'm still in that area. So for people who are listening to this, they've heard upstate New York and they've heard Northeast. If you can give kind of maybe like a more specific location to where the Wolf Center is so people have a better idea, how would you describe where you guys are located? Yeah, so we're... Um, I would say about an hour and 15 minutes north of New York City. Um, so it's not very difficult. Um, even if you don't have a car, it, you can find some way to visit. I mean, we're not far from the Metro North um, train line. So um, folks from the city or folks that are traveling can just hop on a train, call a cab. Um, you do need to be registered for a program to visit us. But um, we're kind of in a nice location where we have a good bit of natural space, but we're not too far from travelers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm from upstate New York, born mm -hmm. and raised. So yeah. born in Utica area and then mm -hmm. moved to the Binghamton area when I was like eight years old and the whole family still lives there. Yeah. So I think you're, you're only about two hours away or so from Probably where my family lives. a little lives. bit, a little bit more. My sister actually more? went to Utica college. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Right. So probably two, between two and three hours, not terribly far. Okay. Now it has been very high on my list of things to do when mm -hmm. I get back into town and see my families to come see you guys. Mm -hmm. um, let's just, we're going to go down many paths today as, as we continue to talk, but uh, you know, as a guest or as some, as a visitor, um, like you said, I need to register, right? What are the things that I can do if I wanted to come visit the, the center? So we have a variety of programs. Um, we do offer, you know, some private visits or um, we try to, you know, really prioritize during the week offering visits to schools and camp groups and things like that. But every weekend we always have public visits available um, and you can find a calendar of those on our website, which we'll probably plug later. <laughs> um, but you can find we, most of our programs are Wolves of North America. That's the title. And so we'll give you kind of an overview of, you know, the plight of wolves. Um, what we're doing, you get to see some of our ambassador wolves. Um, we don't allow any interaction with the wolves because they are wild animals. And we think it's really important to have that distinction that, you know, they're not pets. They're, they're not here for photo ops. They're not here to cuddle with us. Um, they are incredible, but, um, you know, they, they don't really want to be our, our little belly rub companions. <laughs> they want to mm -hmm. be wild animals. Um, so we really do try to protect that. Um, and so we try to kind of infuse as much 
you know, information and as much education um, into these programs as possible and really give an overview of what we do um, and then what visitors can do. Uh, we hope that everyone leaves as, you know, a wolf advocate. So there are kind of daytime programs, but um, we also have overnight visits. So that might be good if you're kind of visiting family. Um, so typically those programs run from end of April to mid-October and we have tents set up for um, visitors. So you don't have to worry about that. Um, and, you know, it's pretty rustic. It's not like glamping or cabin or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It's just a tent on a wood chip path, but you know, you're there in the evening, um, which is when the wolves are most active. We order pizza. We watch a movie by the wolves. We have opportunities to make s'mores and then just kind of some free time where you can wander around, sit near the enclosures, um, you know, see the ambassador wolves, hope that you'll see some of our endangered wolves because they are a little bit more elusive. And most often, I mean, kind of one of the biggest reviews we get is that you're woken up in the middle of the night by the, like wolves howling, um, or it's the first thing you hear in the morning. Um, and it's just, I mean, it's magical. It's a mm -hmm. really cool program. Um, and we just last weekend had our first one of this year because obviously with COVID things got a little bit um, mm -hmm. jumbled, but it's such a popular program and it's so fun to do. And I love seeing visitors come and just, I mean, see wolves for the first time. It's amazing. <laughs> so out of curiosity, how much does something like that cost if someone wanted to come visit and do that? So that program is Oh man, I think it's $299 for a four person tent. Um, okay. So you are splitting it and your meals and everything are covered. Um, so dinner, breakfast, everything like that. Um, for our typical daytime programs, they're $14 for adults or $11 for children. Um, so those are, if you're kind of in the area, probably a little bit more of a price point that is accessible to a lot more people. Um, we also offer virtual programs. Um, we try to keep some of those public as well. Um, and we found that, you know, that's kind of a new tool in our tool belts. That's a really great way to reach people that, that can't make the trip here, um, but still have a little bit more of a personalized experience or something a little more interactive. Um, so we're kind of just always teaching, always kind of getting that information out there. Yeah. The center, you guys do a lot. And honestly, you do a wonderful job on social media. I don't know if you do social media at all or who does that. You it's mostly are... our director of education. Yeah. yeah she's super active. Yeah. <laughs> super active. Um, you guys have over 300,000 followers. And on Facebook, we have 5 million. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Wow. I, I mean, go figure. You know what I mean? Like you guys are a wolf conservation center, but you guys are so much more and you guys are doing something right. If you have yeah. that many, that's crazy. I, I know. know that. That's so cool. It's yeah. hard not to get behind what you guys do and what you guys represent. And, uh, I know the live cams that you guys have on your social media are a huge hit. I see a lot yeah. of comments, a lot of likes and follows, with the live cams. Go, go into detail about what's on the live cams too, if you could. Yeah. So we'll try to do live videos somewhat regularly, both on Facebook and Instagram. And we actually recently added um, a Twitch stream. So um, I believe it's kind of connected to our webcams. So um, with the live videos, uh, we'll kind of go out, go up to the enclosures a few times a day, um, try to find a good, you know, moment where the wolves, particularly the ambassador wolves are maybe in a nice spot um, visually or close to the fence. Um, 
And one thing that's really awesome is that the wolves will respond to us howling. So sometimes we will howl for them and we'll get their, their responses on camera. Um, but it's really great. It's a nice way to capture quieter moments, um, howls aside, but just moments where they're just, you know, relaxing. They're not um, really excited and curious like they are during educational programs um, and just kind of get little glimpses into their day-to-day -day moments. And then our webcams are available 24 seven. So they're on our websites and all of our wolf enclosures have two cameras in them and, you know, barring storms or technical difficulties, they are mm -hmm. running 24 seven. So um, they're a really great way to get insight into the majority of our wolves that you wouldn't see if you were there in person. Um, a lot of our wolves are off exhibit, so we don't want them to become, you know, acclimated to people because they actually have a chance at release into the wild. So, you know, we don't also don't want them to be kept secret. So um, these cameras get allow people sort of in the enclosures and you get to see how they interact and communicate. And it's, it's so fascinating and very distracting if you're trying to work and watch these cameras. <laughs> no, it's fun. It's really fun to watch and take a peek and see, see what the wolves are up to. Yeah. Maybe you could answer this question for me because I genuinely don't know this. Why do people have such a fascination with wolves and myself being one of them? It's hard to say. I mean, wolves kind of fall into the category of charismatic megafauna. Um, so that's basically large animals that, you know, people find really charismatic, find really appealing. So pandas, for example, elephants, um, those animals also in conservation tend to get a lot of funding, whereas other animals that might be equally important, like maybe some, you know, sea slug or field mouse or something like that, um, you know, have a big role, but not as many people are in love with them. So they do kind of have that advantage of being charismatic megafauna. Um, but I think that a lot of the appeal too is that they're such a social animal. Um, and for a lot of large predators, you don't really see that much social behavior. They'll be pretty solitary um, unless it's breeding season or they're traveling with their offspring. Um, but wolves, you know, year round, they're with their family. Um, and so I think some of it is that we relate to that a lot, um, those family bonds. Um, but, you know, there's just so much lore and mythology and cultural significance to wolves that I think there's kind of a lot of reasons that so many people are so connected to them. Hmm. The one that comes to my mind is like, it's almost like the most relatable to their pet too, you know, to their dog. Um, mm -hmm. I know I brought my Huskies, obviously they are super similar. Mm -hmm. It's almost like, uh, yeah, it's that stunning, beautiful looking pet that they don't have. That's just living out there. And you never know if you're going to see one in person. Like, like you said, like little mythology to it. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. Yeah. I always, I always wondered that. I, I don't know why I've been gravitated to them since I was a little kid, but I am. And something I should have brought up minutes ago, it was, uh, I adopted, uh, a, a wolf with you guys, Nikai. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I saw her and I was like, Ooh, stunning. I, I yeah. you know, honestly, it was one of those things that I know with COVID last year, you guys probably weren't getting the visitors you were getting. Um, you know, I've always been drawn to these animals and I, you know, I like to help um, when possible. And you guys have a really great adoption program as well, too. Yeah. Um, it was hard to pick just a wolf to adopt. Oh, I know. <laughs> um, but I was like, she's the one who kind of caught my eye. Uh, yeah. Pure white, just beautiful looking beautiful looking wolf. Yeah. And, uh, 
you know, I kind of wanted to save some of this stuff till later, but let's go over that too, kind of like your adoption process, because you guys do such a good job and you give back to, and like the, uh, I have her paw print on a certificate. Mm -hmm. I have a beautiful photo of her, which is in a frame, which is Mm -hmm. right back there. You can't see, but, uh, and then you guys sent me a stuffed animal and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So go over the whole adoption process because I would love for people to hear about that. All right. So, um, thank you for adopting the Kai. Um, so our adoption process is, it's a symbolic adoption. Um, basically we have tiers that range between $25 to $500. Um, so it's not just 25 or 500. There's, um, a series of options. Um, but you know, when you complete an adoption, so you pick, um, any of our wolves that we have currently living at the Wolf Center. Right now we have 36 wolves there. Um, So Nakai is one of our ambassador wolves. So um, he's been raised by people. He's very familiar. Um, He's kind of right up by the fence when people um, are visiting or are there virtually. Um, So he has an enormous role in teaching people about the other wolves that we have on site and the ones that live in the wild as well. But these adoption adoption, um, programs basically... Uh, you'll through the next year after your adoption, you'll get periodic updates on um, that wolf or kind of seasonal changes that the wolves might be experiencing, Um, you know, updates to their family. So maybe pups were born or maybe um, one of the wolves is lucky enough to get released into the wild. Um, So we try to keep our supporters, you know, informed on what's going on. Um, And then depending on which tier you choose, you might get Um, you know, just an email certificate, or you might get a certificate in the mail, as well as a stuffed animal, um, a tote bag, things like that. So we try to keep it exciting. Um, And all of that, that donation goes directly back into the program. So um, the care of the wolves, um, creating our education materials, things like that, just um, trying to immediately put it back into the conservation and care of these wolves, both in captivity and in the wild. So it's a really fun program. And where can people go to do that? So that can be found on our website. So the website is nywolf.org. So ny as in New York, wolf.org. Um, and if you're looking at the webpage on the top right, you'll see an option that says save the wolves. Um, and under that, you'll see a button that says um, adopt a wolf. And so you can see the different options. You can see all of our wolves. You can get linked to their bios so you can get to know more about them. Um, and it's it's just such a fun program. I'm a very indecisive person. So I definitely relate to you <laughs> kind of agonizing over whether it's Nakai or whether it's another wolf. But I mean, you can adopt multiple wolves. You can adopt yeah. a wolf a year. Um, they're great gifts too. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I will be adopting again and give Nikai my apologies. I said she. That's what I have oh, for all. Fine. That's what I. That's what I get for having all female dogs <laughs> in my house. But uh, yeah, I actually genuinely want to meet Nikai at some point. I want to. I want to see him and say hello and just know yeah. I kind of contributed to that. Mm-hmm. It's a really good feeling. Um, now I know you've said a few times about being released back out. How does that work? How often does that happen? Where do they go? Because I know they're like pack animals and stuff too. So how does that work? So I'm, I'll kind of back up and give you, you know, a little overview of kind of the operations and everything yeah. that we do. Um, so like I said, we have 36 wolves that currently live on site. Um, the only three wolves that actually belong to us um, are the three ambassador wolves. So Zephyr, Alewa, and Nakai. Um, those three are full siblings. 
they've been raised by people. So they are wild animals still, but they're socialized. Um, because they're socialized and they're not afraid of people, they actually are probably our three most dangerous wolves that live on site, which is always kind of, you know, shocking to people because they're the three wolves that they're definitely going to see. Um, they're the three that, you know, are right up by the fence. They get a snack during the programs. Um, and that's kind of something that we're, you know, always reevaluating. These are three wolves that will never be released into the wild because they're socialized to people. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're always looking at, you know, the ethics of this program, um, the quality of life, we give them tons and tons of enrichment to keep every day, you know, exciting and new. Um, but you know, it's not life in the wild. So we're always, um, really cognizant of that sacrifice that they've made. Um, although of course they don't really know, but, um, so they are really, really important to the education of all these, um, folks that come here in person or see us virtually. Um, but you know, it's something that we're always thinking about. So they're there as sort of representatives for their wild counterparts and the other endangered wolves that we have on site. So the other 33 wolves that live at the wolf center are either critically endangered red wolves or endangered Mexican gray wolves. Um, so those species are both obviously endangered species um, and they actually stand a chance at being released into the wild. Um, so our mission is sort of three pronged. Um, it's, we focus on education, advocacy, and recovery. Um, and so that recovery prong, um, has to do with, you know, breeding programs. So maximizing genetic diversity in the captive populations, because unfortunately for both red wolves and Mexican gray wolves, they both have, um, they had previously gone extinct in the wild. Um, so with red wolves, the only remaining individuals at the start of this recovery program, there were only 14 remaining. For Mexican gray wolves, there were only seven remaining. So you can imagine that um, in the past few decades, even though those numbers in captivity have grown, all of those individual wolves are gonna be very closely related. Um, so it's really crucial that, you know, in captivity, we are pairing wolves that are really genetically diverse, and that um, when wolves are released into the wild, that they would be considered kind of genetically valuable um, so that they would be, you know, introducing new genetic material to that wild population and hopefully boosting that diversity as well. Um, so in terms of how wolves are chosen for release, um, typically that decision's not up to us. They'll have these annual meetings. So, um, the program is called the Species Survival Plan or the SSP. Um, so there's one for both the red wolf and the Mexican gray wolf. And so they'll have these annual meetings where um, representatives from all these facilities that house these species will um, join together, usually in person this year and last year, obviously virtual. Um, and they'll look at the ancestry of the wolves in their care, um, the genetic makeup of you know, the wild populations, the captive populations, and they'll make recommendations for who should be released. Um, so uh, genetics have a big uh, role in that, but also behavior. So for example, our most recent wolf that was released was, he was um, a red wolf and he was actually born at our center. And um, he was chosen to be released into North Carolina, which is the only place that red wolves are currently where, where at where, cause I live in North Carolina. So, Oh, wow. Um, so kind of the outer banks area in, um, alligator river national wildlife area. Okay. Um, so at the moment there are unfortunately only nine red wolves in the wild. 
Um, this program has been, you know, kind of mismanaged, kind of tossed around a little bit. Um, and so this release was actually um, the result of a lawsuit from multiple environmental organizations uh, against the Fish and Wildlife Service. And they were basically saying that the Fish and Wildlife Service, you know, wasn't really upholding their end of the deal. They weren't releasing red wolves into the wild. Um, and they were just allowing this population to dwindle. Um, and basically we were looking at a wild extinction again. Um, so the lawsuit was successful. So the decision was made that eight red wolves would be released, um, four adults, and then four pups. And those pups would be, you know, under two weeks old. So their eyes aren't even open. Um, and they would be placed into a wild den. So with a lactating female who would then raise them um, as if they're her own and they would then grow up in the wild. Um, so our red wolf that was selected was, uh, it was actually between him and his brother. So his name is Devin, his brother is called Ben. And basically either of them would be equally genetically valuable. And they left that kind of last call up to us. And so we ultimately selected Devin because of the two brothers, he was much warier of people. And so that is likely going to result in greater success um, in them, you know, being avoidant of people and their survival in the wild. Um, they're kind of the wolfiest um, that way. So Devin was released into, he was kind of first into, he was first placed into a, an acclimation pen um, with a female so that they could sort of bond and hopefully be released together. Um, that's one of the many ways that you can release wolves is either, you know, as these cross fostered pups, as individuals, as um, pairs, or even as families, That's that tends to be the most successful and lately the least utilized. Um, but he was in this pen with this female to bond and then they were released together. And unfortunately, just a few days after his release, Devin was hit by a car. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And the female that had been released right before him, she was hit by a car. And then the female that he was released with was then hit by a car. Um, so there's one adult that was released around the same time that's still out there. Um, but, you know, this is a wildlife refuge and there are posted speed limits everywhere. And we see this in national parks. We see it all over the place where you know, these endangered animals that have gone through so much, um, not only is it, you know, a grueling process, it's also so political, just kind of getting the, the green light to release animals takes so much more than just us being like, hey, this is a good idea. Um, so for it all to end so tragically and so quickly, I mean, it's heartbreaking. And this is a wolf that we've known his entire life. Um, so I know that's a big bummer, but it is kind of the reality of, you know, recovery, that it can be such a steep uphill battle and that, you know, there are just some such simple things, just slow down when you're driving through a wildlife refuge um, and you could, you know, help this wild population persist. Um, so. I yeah, was going to ask, I was going to ask when you release them, like, is there a chance that that is taking a huge risk. And obviously the answer to that is yes. Um, that's super disheartening to hear. Yeah. Um, do you like track them when you release them? Do you have tracks so you have an idea of where they are and how they're performing? Yeah. So when they're released as adults, they get fitted with GPS collars. So those collars will kind of transmit their locations um, a few times a day. Um, and 
when something happens, like a mortality event, um, that it'll signal to the researchers that basically this animal hasn't moved for typically with an animal like a wolf, 12 hours. Um, so there are kind of two options for collars, GPS collar where they sort of electronically track them or VHF collars, which it stands for very high frequency. And that means you have to have someone out in the field kind of holding up an antenna, listening for the beeping sound. Um, and as soon as that mortality signal goes out, um, researchers will go out to that location and figure out what happened. So they'll, if they can, they'll find um, the animal's carcass and the, they will perform a necropsy. So they'll basically an autopsy for animals um, and figure out what happened. I mean, we've seen poaching, we've seen, um, you know, injuries from other wolves. Um, when I worked with mountain lions, we would see a lot of rodenticide poisoning. Um, so it does give you a lot of really crucial information. Um, but you know, it's, it's just tough. It's really tough. I mean, this hurts my heart to hear, and I don't even know these wolves, right? I imagine with you kind of raising these wolves as little pups, that's got to be really difficult for you and everyone that works there to go through, you know, these yeah. trauma basically situations. Oh man, that's. Uh, yeah. It's always right? bittersweet knowing that a wolf has kind of been chosen for release because it's really, it's all we want for them is to have life in the wild because that's what they deserve. Um, and it's what, if we could ask them, it's what they would choose, but it's always a little bit bittersweet when we kind of get them ready for their transport. And we know that it's going to be such a difficult adjustment and it's, there's just so many things kind of stacked against them. Um, so that's why, you know, obviously we can't really stop um, accidental deaths, but, you know, kind of creating legislation and encouraging people to protect habitat and things like that. Um, so we can give them their best possible chance is really where the advocacy part comes in. Now, what about the pups? You said there's pups also released. Are they doing okay? Um, so they're not counted technically towards the nine individuals in the wild because at this point, we don't know um, how they're doing. So those pups are too small to get any kind of tracking mechanism. Um, they do get little microchips. So like we put in our dogs and cats so that if they're eventually captured in the future, or if there is, you know, maybe a mortality event, um, they can, you know, scan that little chip that's under their, um, mm -hmm. the nape of their neck and they can identify that individual. Um, so we're not sure if those pups have survived to this point, um, they would be about three, four months old right now. Um, the reality is that for pups, there's only a 50% survival rate to their first birthday. Mm. So we know that it's a high risk, but um, they are with a mother that has had pups before. So hopefully um, survival will be higher. Why is that? Why is it 50, 50? It's just so tough to live in the wild. I mean, it could be lack of food. It could be parasites. I mean, that's probably the most common, um, you know, exposure to the elements, predation from other animals. Um, it, so there's just so many things that can make their lifespans shorter or just make it difficult for them to survive. At least it sounds like the 50 is mother nature. I, I yeah. have an easier time dealing with, with mother nature than humans, uh, you know, ruining their chances. Exactly. And, you know, as you talk here, 
you know, we do know that wolves are endangered and some type of wolves more than others. Why is it that they are endangered? Um, humans, humans would be really kind of the, the shortest answer for that. Um, you know, habitat degradation, um, one of the first laws in the U S was actually a bounty on wolves. So, um, folks would get paid for every wolf that they killed. So whether they shot them, poisoned them, trapped them. However, um, it really incentivized just a total eradication campaign against them. Um, and if you think about just kind of on a more basic cultural level, just think about a lot of the stories that we hear as kids. We have Little Red Riding Hood, the three little pigs, the boy who cried wolf. We're told that wolves are the bad guy. Um, and it really couldn't be further from the truth that wolves are going to chase us through the woods. I mean, we see it um, at the Wolf Center with all of our endangered wolves. They are terrified of us and they're pretty close to people. I mean, we're not in the enclosures with them. We're, we have no part in raising them from young pups, but um, they, I mean, they run from us and they should. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of factors, but a lot of it has to do with just a misunderstanding of wolves, um, a lot of large scale ranching operations that, um, you know, don't really want to put the effort into coexistence methods. Um, it's just kind of, if there's any, you know, conflict that they just want to immediately remove that wolf. And if you think about in the Southwest in particular, where there are these large scale ranching operations, um, these ranchers can lease public land for just a few dollars per animal. And um, basically they're, they're grazing thousands of animals on public land, which belongs to all of us. Um, and the presence of these animals, so cattle, for example, it displaces the native fauna. So elk and bison, they get pushed off the land because, you know, there are all these enormous herds that are kind of trampling everything and eating everything. Um, and so wolves that are territorial animals, you know, they live in these areas and suddenly the food that they normally hunt is gone or it's harder to find. And so you'll see sometimes that, you know, wolves, particularly younger, more inexperienced wolves, they might start going after livestock. Um, and so when that happens, usually those ranchers will get a depredation permit or they're just allowed to remove that wolf. Um, and the reality is that wolves count, account for, I believe it's 0.009 livestock deaths. So under 0.1% of livestock deaths, they're far more likely to, you know, be injured by stepping wrong into a hole or even being struck by lightning, um, respiratory illnesses, things like that. Um, but wolves kind of really bear the brunt of the blame and it's, heartbreaking. So a lot of it is, you know, just not realizing the important role that wolves play. Um, but they have an enormous role in the ecosystem. So it's, it's a big disaster that, um, there are so few of them now. Yeah. I have an issue, not just with wolves in general, but like, you know, when people have like livestock or something that's getting, well, we'll just say like attacked by wolves, even though you said that's super rare, it's like the answer is to kill it. You know, it's like, why is that the answer to kill it? Yeah. Maybe just build a bigger fence. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> and, I mean, they have, um, there's been kind of proven studies that show that having a human presence. So for example, a range rider, someone on horseback out with your cattle that significantly reduces these depredation events. Um, 
using flagery. So just kind of flagging that's just strung along a wire because wolves are naturally neophobic. So afraid of new things. And when they see that the flapping colored flagging or reflective flagging, they tend to avoid it. Um, you know, removing animals that have succumbed to whatever, if it's, you know, a calf that didn't survive or an animal that has fallen ill, um, kind of removing the carcasses so that they're not an attractant. There are just so many things that you can do before you start um, lethally removing wolves. And they found too that um, removing wolves like that, kind of lethally removing them, um, disrupts the structure of the pack and sometimes results in more depredation events because you have younger individuals that are maybe a little bit more clueless that are now kind of on their own. Um, so they go for what might be easier. Um, and, you know, you just have potentially new animals coming in. So it's just, I mean, there's not a whole lot of science behind lethal removal of wolves. Mm. I absolutely, honestly love how like educated you are on this <laughs> for real. Is this something you've learned more so as you kind of been working there longer or were you taught this in college and just out of genuine curiosity, what did you major in to know all of this? So I majored in wildlife conservation. So pretty, pretty on brand for what I'm doing yeah. right now. Um, and I also had, well, I had a double major in agriculture and natural resources, but a lot of those kind of courses overlapped. Um, so we learned some of this, but a lot of it, I would say I've kind of absorbed over the last two and a half years. Um, I mean, I teach a ton of programs every year. So, and I'm constantly, we're constantly, you know, reading all the wolf, the wolf news and discussing it and trying to, you know, figure out, is this sound science? Is this, um, what's our messaging, that kind of thing. So um, thank you <laughs> for the compliment, but yeah. Um, yeah, I'd say that the majority of it, I've kind of. Um, become more versed in in the past few years. Well, I can say I, you know, I appreciate your education and knowledge in this area. And not only that is like the strategy and the thought that you guys all put behind you know, raising the wolf, these wolves and before you release them and all the conversations that go on, you know, you make sure you do it properly. I appreciate it. It's being an animal lover. You just want to see them survive, you know, yeah. and putting them in a situation to succeed is very important. And mm -hmm. it's really nice to see you guys take the time to do that. And, you know, I know we talked about donating and sending proceeds to know it's actually going towards, mm -hmm. you know, a conservation center that is legit hundred percent all in on these wolves surviving yeah. makes it a lot easier to do rather than just mm -hmm. taking the money and running. And I know we're talking about like livestock attacks. Are they even on record at all for any human deaths? Um, I believe it's been in the U.S. I think two confirmed deaths in the last two hundred or so years. <laughs> um, yeah. So I mean, even that kind of the fear that people have of encountering a wolf in wolf country is, I mean it's just kind of a misunderstanding of what they're like. Um, most of these animals have absolutely no desire to be around us. If they hear us coming, they are out of there. Um, so, you know, this fear that a lot of people have of wolves, although I understand it because if you look at a lot of the media that we take in, mm -hmm. it seems like it's a founded fear, but um, the reality is that they really want nothing to do with us. And I mean, we'll see that when we do, captures when we do our annual health checks that they are petrified. They want to get away from us. Um, they kind of submit when we're handling them. I mean, they really just 
absolutely were probably their least favorite thing in the world. They just, and they have no, I mean, the wolves that live in captivity have no real reason to fear us, but instinctually mm. they know that's probably not something I want to be around. And mm. they're right. <laughs> you said wolf country. So what would be the most populous, which is a um, state and or country of wolves? Um, Alaska, definitely. Um, so in the continental U.S. right now, there are somewhere between 6,000 to 11,000 gray wolves. Um, in Alaska, there's about 11,000. Um, historically, there were about 250,000. So wow. just to put that into context, yeah. Um, so the majority of them would be kind of out west, um, you know, Yellowstone area. Um, there have been a few states recently in the past 10 years that have kind of... Um, regained a wolf population, although really small. So Northern California, there are some wolves that are kind of finding their way back to the area. Um, Colorado recently had a few wolves that have sort of migrated back there. Um, so in the Northeast, there are none. Um, in North Carolina, where you are, there are nine <laughs> red wolves. Um, <laughs> so for the most part, they would be out West or in Alaska. Well, I'm going to Alaska in yeah. three weeks now. And I really oh, genuinely wow. am. So out of curiosity, do you have any idea in Alaska where like there might, they might be more located or just, is that more of a general statement? I genuinely would not be able to guide you. I have no idea really. I would love to go to Alaska myself, but um, yeah, I wouldn't know where to tell you to go. <laughs> I, I, it'd be awesome. I'd be amazed if I saw a wolf um, yeah. out there. And I will say, um, I think about three or four years ago, I went to a place called Predators of the Heart. I'm not sure if you're familiar with, mm -mm. with that place. It's like another conservation center, but I'm really curious to get your perspective on this. So when I was out there, um, one of the reasons I went was because you can actually meet and play with the wolves mm -hmm. and get photos with them. Um, but you guys don't allow that. You guys seem to have like a different perspective on that. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on them allowing people to interact so closely? Like I was reacting so closely to them or interacting so closely. Um, and I have pictures of the wolf's fangs basically mm -hmm. going into my jaw and stuff. I was biting me and kind of playing with me in, yeah. in a very playful way. Mm -hmm. Looking back on that, was I somewhat in, in a bad position or overall that's not that big I mean, of a deal? I would say interacting with any large animal certainly has its risks. Um, the reality is that centers that allow interaction with their animals those are not animals that will ever be released. Hmm. Um, so, you know, you have to kind of consider, you know, the mission of certain places. Um, are they participating in federal recovery programs or is it just a photo op? Um, I mean, there is something to being able to see wolves um, and clearly you love wolves, although it sounds like you loved wolves before that, but um, you know, that's, we have ambassador wolves and that's probably not, I mean, it's because we want people to see wolves and mm -hmm. love wolves, um, but we kind of draw the line there. I mean, we don't allow people on the other side of the fence. Even I don't go on the other side of the fence. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you have to consider kind of where, what is going to happen to these wolves? Are they constantly breeding wolves so people have opportunities or any animal, tigers, lions, um, so people have opportunities to take photos with pups? Um, you know, what happens if an individual animal you know, isn't so great with the public? Are they going to be euthanized? Um, I know that as horrifying as it is, I mean, 
we have signs everywhere that say no hands on the fence. Um, because if something happened, if one of our ambassador wolves or any of our wolves, you know, injured someone, we would be forced to euthanize them. That oh, obviously God. wouldn't be our choice, but it would be what was mandated. Um, so we want to protect them as well. So I don't know what the instances of uh, locations like that, if they have any kind of negative issues with animals in the public, but um, I know that certainly animals that are interacting with people would never get to be released. So, uh, yeah. And just to state again, predators of the heart, it was an amazing experience. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend them. So um, didn't want to seem like that was negative yeah, of course. at all. I'd, yeah. I'd go back tomorrow if I could. And it just kind of reminds me of like, you see these articles occasionally, like lady crosses into a leopard pen and gets chewed up or whatever and then they kill like the animal it's like Mm -hmm. well you idiot like you shouldn't have jumped the fence or put your hands through it like everybody Mm -hmm. knows that that just drives me insane is that like a like a state law that forces that yeah i mean i i don't know about kind of where exactly that law would come from but i mean for example we had that gorilla a few years ago harambe where a a toddler ended up in the enclosure Mm -hmm. um and it was too dangerous for zookeepers to go in there because he was a large silverback gorilla. And now he had an infant with him. And so they had to kill him. Um, and people were heartbroken and, you know, it's just, I mean, it's horrifying that even in captive settings, you can have these rules and people will just say, Oh no, well, well, I'm different. I'm going to go in there. And it's heartbreaking for the people that raise the animals. It's heartbreaking for conservation efforts and it's so, so preventable that it's, I mean, people. Yeah. You, you, I, that's, I know, people. I know. That's really what it comes down to. And that's why they're endangered and people also behind the media. Um, so I know we brought up media a couple of times. Like, what do you feel like media portrays wrong about wolves that you would like to clear the air on? I mean, I think in a lot of instances where people see wolves or, other wildlife or have any kind of interaction with them, they're not really looking at the whole picture. Um, obviously there you're occasionally going to have a situation where you might have a rabbit animal or a cornered animal. Um, even knowing that, I mean, there's still only been two deaths by wolves, um, in the last 200 or so years. Um, so that's, that's incredibly rare that that would be an issue, but um, I see this when I do a lot of my education efforts about Eastern coyotes that they'll put out, you know, police alerts and things like that about coyote sightings. And I'm like, well, they, we all know they're around here. So mm-hmm. do we really need to, I mean, are we putting out an alert every time someone sees a raccoon? No. Um, if we have an animal that is having conflict with people, then maybe that's worthy of an alert, but just kind of sensationalizing really basic encounters or evidence of animals um, can be, I think, really problematic. And so we'll see that with wolves, but it also goes the other way that, um, you know, they, people make out wolves to be, you know, these saint-like creatures and that they're mythical and that they're wonderful and they're wise. And it's like, they're not saints. They're not, you know, devils. They're just animals that are trying to survive. Um, So, getting people to realize that, you know, we don't need to assign all these values and everything to wild animals, but see them for what they are, um, acknowledge their ecological impact and the fact that they just kind of intrinsically have value that they 
deserve to live and they deserve to live peacefully and safely in the wild. Um, so I think it can definitely go both ways, but I, I definitely <laughs> harp more on the negative side where um, they make out animals to be horrifying, vicious beasts where it's like, well, maybe your cat shouldn't have been outside. Maybe that would have solved a problem. Right? I mean, yeah. it is, we are kind of impeding on their world, you know, yeah. when any of these issues happen, it's like, mm-hmm. well, what were you doing wrong? Let's be real, you know? Yeah. And it kind of also reminds me of, um, you know, teddy bears and moose and all. you see these very, I guess, semi-aggressive animals be glorified as like little pets and you know like i said teddy bears and stuff Mm -hmm. that kids think are just the sweetest cutest animals it is really funny how the media can just completely twist um what an animal actually is and Mm -hmm. just give you a skewed perception yeah on that and uh you know it really kind of angers me a little bit too when when doing stuff like that has led to the endangerment of an animal that did nothing wrong, just living mm-hmm. their life. You know, they're exactly. not, they're not doing anything wrong. It's, mm-hmm. it's the humans that are, and, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this that are just uh, going to completely agree with that. Uh, yeah. it, you know, it just, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in their world. Um, out of curiosity, do you know what Dr. Brian Hare, are you familiar with him? No. So I actually spoke with him a year ago on my podcast mm-hmm. and he does a lot of research as, as far as uh, with wolves and a lot of it led to um, the to dog research. Mm-hmm. And it was really cool to kind of hear his, um, his uh, research and how it came about, how dogs basically all derived from wolves. Mm-hmm. They were just the wolves that became more friendly with people. So Mm -hmm. like thousands of years ago, when the hunters and gatherers had all these scraps of food and carcasses around them, the wolves stopped hunting and they would just hang around where the people were. Mm -hmm. And those were the wolves that became friendly with them and they would breed and then their wolves would stick around the people. And that's Mm -hmm. how gradually dogs came about. So dogs were just the wolves that became friendlier. Exactly. It's like selective breeding. I mean, what it was. Yeah. Yeah. That, that are, you know, a little bit less fearful of people. If they're around people and getting access to food, that's going to increase their survival rate. That's going to make it more likely that they then pass on their genes to more pups that probably also lack that fear. And so eventually, I mean, now we do like really accelerated selective breeding, but I mean, even with um, dogs and things like that. Um, I mean, I'm all adopt, don't shop, <laughs> but if you're looking at, you know, ethical breeders, they're not necessarily going to be breeding for coloration. They're going to be breeding for temperament. Um, and it's that same kind of concept that you want to make sure that um, temperament and health and things like that are kind of at the forefront. And that's sort of what happened with wolves. And now mm-hmm. every single dog that we have, regardless of whether they're your huskies or whether they're someone's pug, they're all 98% wolf. That's how right. genetically similar they are. Yeah. hundred percent right. So funny. <laughs> yeah. I honestly yeah. recommend you and anybody listening to this, go check out Dr. Brian Harris yeah, uh, book. Um, really get, it talks all about that. So, mm-hmm. so much research into it. And he does say how they all are genetically connected to wolves, yeah. but it's funny how I think there's like six, seven, eight breeds that are more connected to wolves. One of them mm-hmm. being obviously being Huskies, mm-hmm. I think Akita's and, uh, 
probably I, all those cold weather dogs. Yeah. But, I think there's, there's a few more that I just, that it's just slipping my mind right now, mm-hmm. but uh, super, super interesting. The guy's very, very smart. I know he does a lot of research with a conservation conservation um, center up in Minnesota. Oh yeah. Um, the one International of these, Wolf Center. Yeah. He, he yeah. works up there a lot. So one of these days I'd love to make it up there too and check that out. Mm-hmm. And, um, I know this is a very famous and popular story, but I do know how you said how wolves are very important to the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Now I'm sure you're familiar with the Yellowstone mm-hmm. story for people who are listening that aren't familiar with it or kind of forget, I would love for you to go into detail about that. Sure. Um, so there's kind of the, basically the wolf reintroduction into Yellowstone became sort of this textbook example of um, predators impact on the landscape or even just a keystone species. So wolves had historically lived in Yellowstone and kind of in the Yellowstone area. Um, and then through hunting and, you know, all of these eradication efforts, um, they went extinct in that area. So they were eradicated um, and they were missing from the Yellowstone landscape for about 70 years. And, in their absence, their primary prey species, elk, because um, wolves are mostly eating ungulates, so large mammals with hooves, elk, moose, bison. Um, basically, the elk population really boomed um, because they didn't really have natural predators. I mean, there were bears and mountain lions, but not so much. Um, and so what they then saw was, of course, elk need to eat, um, and they're in these really large herds. And so they would basically eradicate, not eradicate, but decimate um, a lot of the local tree species. So aspen saplings, for example, were never really able to reach maturity because the elk would feed on them before they could grow to a full grown tree. Um, Because of that, other species that really depended on trees, um, whether it was for cover or whether it was for food sources, Um, they then were lacking the resources they needed. So songbirds, small mammals. um, So you saw a complete dive in their populations. Um, There was kind of an erosion of the riverbeds because there weren't really these strong root systems keeping those rivers uh, kind of solid. Um, So rivers were drying up. Beavers left the area because the trees that they would use to dam up rivers and create wetlands um, were now disappearing. Um, Beavers are also considered ecosystem engineers. So they're really crucial um, in that, you know, they can create an entire new ecosystem in a few weeks um, by damming up a river and providing habitat for all these other species. Coyote populations really changed. I mean, the coyote population was um, increasing. And so there was basically a lack of balance. Um, The equilibrium was completely disrupted. And a lot of these tree groves ended up turning into kind of these sparse fields because again, those trees weren't able to reach maturity. So when wolves were then reintroduced to Yellowstone in the late nineties, what they saw after that was behavioral changes and then ecological changes. So um, elk started moving again because now they had a predator in the area. They called it the ecology of fear, which I think is like the most metal name you've ever heard in ecology. Um, But what it means is that, you know, they had to keep moving. They couldn't just stand in one area and over browse until there was nothing left. They had to keep moving because there might be wolves nearby. Um, So they would eat a little here, move on, eat a little there. Um, And so that allowed some trees to grow. 
Um, because of that, you know, songbird populations came back. Um, wolves sort of controlled the coyote populations, so they were kind of balanced out a little bit more. Beavers came back. Um, lots of species that had never been seen or heard, or at least hadn't been there in a hundred years, were now returning to the, to the landscape of Yellowstone. And so it really became um, this textbook example of their impact. So wolves are considered a keystone species, um, which is kind of a species that has an impact on pretty much every level of the ecosystem. So it refers to um, kind of a stone arch and basically builders would build these arches and you would keep it sturdy by finally placing in that keystone, that one that goes at the top of the arch and keeps everything solid and together. Um, and so keystone species aren't always large predators, but they frequently are. Um, and wolves were really that perfect example. Um, so there are some videos out there. I think there's one called How Wolves Change Rivers. Um, it's a little bit outdated, but it's a good overview of really their impact. Um, and we see that kind of to other degrees in other places. I mean, here in New York, there are no natural predators of white-tailed deer. Um, there are no wolves. There are no mountain lions. There are some black bears, but um, they're not having an impact on the population. So we see around here, I mean, there's almost no forest understory. Um, there's a ton of deer vehicle collisions. Um, we have songbirds that now are lacking habitat um, or, you know, resources. So you'll see it in a lot of different places, but they were kind of that ideal example of, you know, how restoring balance makes an enormous difference. Mm. And that's just one location. I can't exactly. imagine the entire continent. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's funny how you said that one uh, documentary is changing rivers. Like that's said to be true, right? Like mm -hmm. the releasing of the wolves actually legit changed the, where the rivers mm -hmm. uh, were running. Right. Yeah. Because those trees were able to kind of have firm, strong root systems and, you know, create riverbeds um, and stream edges and things like that, instead of having these rivers erode and just disintegrate. Um, yeah. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. That's just mind blowing when you think about it, how you take one species out and you put them back and how it changes back. I mean, mm -hmm. this just goes for more than just animals, you know, this is exactly. everything as far as climate control and, mm -hmm. and all that, you know, like yeah. you do one thing and look how it's really just kind of messes up the planet and the entire ecosystem. Exactly. You know, yeah, it runs so smoothly. It's not, yeah. It's not just about us, you know, loving and appreciating wolves. It's not just about being, sentimental towards this amazing creature it's they actually have a really crucial role in the ecosystem and mm -hmm. so it's more than just i mean management has to take all of that into account and we see that it frequently doesn't <laughs> uh, but i i'm curious to know you know growing in up, upstate new york you'd feel like that would be a really solid place for wolves to live it gets freaking freezing up there there's plenty of trees there's valleys or mountains the adirondacks are up there why aren't wolves, why don't you let them go up there? Why aren't wolves in that location? So there isn't really enough habitat for them um, in the Northeast and in New York. If they were to survive, I mean, the Adirondacks would be a good location for them, but it's very limited. Um, so wolves in New York are listed as an endangered species, even though there is no population here. So that if any of them do happen to, you know, cross through New York from Canada, they're legally protected that are not physically protected, obviously, but um, legally you wouldn't be able to remove one. Um, so 
I don't think that wolves are going to come back to the Northeast anytime soon, at least not a population of them. You might have the occasional wolf crossing through, but for any kind of New Yorkers or Northeasterners listening, the animal you're seeing in your backyard is probably a coyote. <laughs> if it's, if you're not sure, you're welcome to send me a picture. Um, but you know, I don't, I don't really see it happening anytime soon, unfortunately. How big of an area do they need? Um, it depends on availability of resources. So, you know, if there's a ton of resources, they're not going to need as much area, but their territory can be, you know, 50 to a thousand square miles. I mean, it can be huge. Um, and there might be some overlap with other wolves, but for the most part, when you look at kind of these maps that biologists will make up from, um, the GPS collar data, you'll see this wolf population is here. This one is right here. This one is here. And they sort of fit together like puzzles. Um, but that there's not a ton of overlap because overlap usually leads to conflict with other wolves. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's funny you brought that up because I was going to actually bring that up. I saw a chart a few weeks ago with mm-hmm. that GPS data. Yeah. Um, so anybody who's listening, I recommend go Google this. It was like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, wolf GPS data chart where it was like, I think there was five packs mm-hmm. and this one pack just circled this one area is all in yellow and the other mm-hmm. was all in blue and the other yeah. one was in red, but they didn't go into each other's areas. Yeah. That is super interesting. And yeah. to know, like, how are they that smart? How are they communicating? Is that what the howling is about? Um, the howling. So howling can communicate to other wolves that, you know, this area is occupied. This is how many of us there are. Um, there is a lot of crucial information in a howl. Um, a lot of it is marking those boundaries with olfactory cues. So scent markers, which is basically just pee and poop. Mm. Um, so the same reason our dogs are kind of, you know, peeing on fire hydrants or just kind of high traffic areas. Um, they're saying I was here. This is information about me. Um, a wolf's sense of smell is a hundred times stronger than ours. They can smell their prey up to a mile and a half away. Mm. Um, in fact, they'll use it to identify, you know, potential prey. So they can smell, um, a, you know, jaw infection in an elk and they'll target that one because they're going to be easier to catch. Um, so having these cues kind of around the boundaries of their territories, it's a really good way to tell other wolves don't come in here because second to humans, the next biggest cause of death for wolves is wolf to wolf conflict. So that kind of intraspecies conflict. Um, so they will kill, not always, but they will often kill a wolf that has, you know, strayed into their territory. Um, and that can be difficult for, you know, a young wolf dispersing and trying to find their own territory. It's an enormous risk because they have to maybe travel thousands of miles before they find vacant territory. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's definitely tough to be a wolf, but even knowing that, I mean, our goal is still release because that's really what's best for them and the ecosystem. How far do howls travel? Do you know? They can actually hear each other up to 10 miles away. Um, I mean, obviously landscape will play some role in that. So if it's a really mountainous area, you might not hear it quite as far. Um, But yeah, it's, it's a ton of information, Um, but it can also make them vulnerable. I mean, if they're near wolves that are maybe looking for conflict, Mm. they've just revealed their exact location. Um, So they will howl for, like I said, advertising um, their pack size, their territory. They'll howl to communicate with family members. Um, And we've also found that they howl just for fun. 
um, they, we call it social glue. So it's kind of like singing with friends around a campfire. Hmm. It really reaffirms their social bonds with one another. And um, social bonds are, I mean, so important for a wolf pack. So it's really interesting. And we'll have wolves at the wolf center. Like I said earlier, they will respond to us howling sometimes if they feel like it. Um, they'll respond to police sirens. Um, we had one program years ago where we had kind of a coffee set up in front of the wolves and we had a tea kettle that started whistling and one of our ambassador wolves, Zephyr answered it. (laughs) (laughs) I believe it. Yeah. Yeah, Occasionally, like I used to live in a place where occasionally like uh, the smoke alarm or fire alarm would go off. I'll take a hot shower. My husky would be outside howling right to the fire (laughs) alarm. Yeah. Yeah. Trucks will pass by and all that. Um, Are you guys doing actual research into these howls trying to decipher how they're speaking? Um, We're not. I mean, we do sometimes host researchers. um, So they will sometimes come and kind of Um, perform research by observing the wolves or playing different sounds. Um, We've done a lot of reproductive research with um, Cornell and with the Smithsonian. Um, But in terms of their howls, uh, it's usually just kind of individual researchers, maybe grad students or PhD students that come in um, and will do kind of their own little project. Okay. Yeah. It just reminds me of like all the research you see being done with like uh, dolphins and like mm-hmm. whales and how they're trying to yeah. uh, understand the communication. Um, as far as like conservation centers goes, are you guys like the biggest, are you like the biggest and the best? And you're allowed to say yes. You can, <laughs> you can boast I and mean, brag about it. I of course like to think we're the best. Um, <laughs> I don't know if we're the biggest. I, I would guess, cause I haven't checked this, but I would guess that we probably have the biggest social media following. Um, I think we're certainly up there in terms of how many wolves we currently house. Um, we've gotten up to 50 wolves in the past. Um, and that number will change based on, you know, wolves being released, wolves moving to other facilities for breeding, Mm -hmm. um, things like that. Um, but you know, I like to think that we're unique and that we're one of a kind, but we certainly do work with other centers that are part of the species survival plan. Um, and it becomes a really collaborative effort. I was going to ask that. That's one of the questions I have is, do you mm-hmm. communicate with the other ones? Um, yeah, so we that's... operate completely individually. But um, like I said, those other 33 wolves that we have outside of the ambassador wolves, um, they are, they don't belong to us. They're kind of government owned wolves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they will get moved between facilities for breeding or if there's vacant space. Um, so wolf packs don't get too big because then they'll start bickering. Um, but things like that. So we do work collaboratively, but, um, we kind of operate on our own. Okay. I mean, that's great. Cause you would figure you guys all have the, the same goal the same in goal. mind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, do you just random question? Do you have like, a? does the New York wolf conservation center have like a best friend? Like, is there another <laughs> center that you guys work very closely with? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I mean, to be completely honest, if we do, I'm unaware. I mean, cause that <laughs> I don't really handle the communications with other centers. Um, but I'm sure there are, you know, representatives from other facilities that maybe we communicate with more, um, or maybe we've kind of swapped wolves more. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know if there's one that we're kind of professionally closest to. That's a good, yeah. a good question though. Just a random, just <laughs> yeah. a random thought, honestly. I know we've gone back and forth between you and the wolves and 
because they're just super interesting and you give so much good information. I'm taking advantage, <laughs> taking advantage of that while I can. Uh, so I imagine there's probably people listening to this that are genuinely interested in doing what you do. Mm-hmm. And I am one of them actually. Yeah. Um, what kind of advice would you tell those people? Um, I mean, I would say, so one of the things I love doing is um, when we have, you know, students reach out, um, what advice would you give me? That kind of thing. Um, I would say that most people have some sort of skill that they can lend to conservation. I mean, every conservation center has accountants, has IT people, has um, grant writers or um, volunteers or things like that. Um, So there's so many different ways that you can sort of lend your expertise. Maybe it's even, you know, in the meantime, just talking about the Wolf Center or sharing things like that. Um, But, you know, especially if there's any kind of undergraduate listeners getting kind of experience where, um, you know, you're volunteering on research projects. I always tell people just email, like just send a cold email. The worst thing people can do is say no. The second worst is they'll never answer you, which is probably the most common, but I mean, you never know um, if maybe they're opening, they have a job opening or a volunteer position and you asked it right at the exact time that they were looking and you click. Um, so I always say, just ask, um, if someone doesn't have time, they'll ignore your email, not the end of the world. Um, but you know, trying to get involved, um, definitely getting used to kind of lending your voice to the cause. So, um, for example, on our website, we have, um, kind of a take action page and you can find different petitions and, um, phone numbers to call and emails for whatever kind of cause we're currently talking about. So for example, right now, um, here's the shameless plug. Um, we have a petition on our website where um, we are asking President Joe Biden and Interior Secretary Deb Holland to relist gray wolves because in January of this year, um, gray wolves lost their protections under the Endangered Species Act. So what that means is that their management gets turned over from the federal level to the state level. And almost immediately, that was very unsurprisingly a disaster. Um, so we're trying to get people to make it very clear that this is a priority. Um, and sometimes it's just a matter of plugging in your information, but really trying to figure out ways that you can help. Um, and, you know, figuring out where you might be able to lend your skills because there are so many ways you can contribute. Mm, That's great advice. And, uh, for people listening who are wondering more about you, like what do your day-to-day activities look like? Um, that will change a lot. So, um, we have at the moment four educators. Um, so I'm one of those four. And so throughout the week we'll have, um, you know, programs offered to schools and camps, some of them virtual, um, some of them in person, sometimes private groups as well. And so a lot of it will be kind of doing that onsite education. Um, so, you know, standing in front of the wolves, telling people about what we do, why we do it. Um, But I also, as wildlife outreach specialist, I design a lot of outreach kind of initiatives and things like that, um, trying to get people to be more in touch with their local wildlife because wolves are not local to most people. Um, And so, you know, just becoming kind of invested in what's going on around you, starting at a local level, um, creating kind of educational opportunities for kids and adults, um, things like that, because Uh, the way I look at a lot of particularly these young visitors 
is that that was me. Um, so realizing that, you know, showing people that they don't have to go this one direction that they can really contribute in so many different ways um, and getting them to feel connected when we're so often disconnected from our own backyards um, and just kind of piquing that interest um, and getting people to realize how connected everything is to one another. Um, So a lot of that is me designing programs or me designing educational materials, um, reaching out to you know, local townships and libraries and offering programs. Um, one that we're like kind of currently rolling out is um, a program called Coyote Wise, where we're trying to, you know, offer these free workshops um, to towns and libraries and apartment complexes, things like that, teaching people about coyotes, really demystifying them, um, kind of unofficially certifying them as Coyote Wise, um, and hoping that they will then take pride in that. And so they'll, if there's ever, you know, more sightings or, you know, a coyote in the area that's maybe a little bit too bold that instead of jumping right to lethal removal, that instead we are taking proactive measures before any of that ever happens and, you know, encouraging wildlife to remain wild. Mm. Um, So it will change. It's um, I'm at the computer a lot, but not all the time, Um, but compared to my field work days, it's a lot. (laughs) Um, but it's really exciting to be able to kind of design, um, different ways that people might feel connected. That's wonderful. And you're making a really positive difference in life. You know, that's gotta be like, really, you can go to bed tonight and to be like, you know, I made a difference today and (laughs) to have a job where you can actually feel that way is, I think is wonderful. I'm very lucky. And, um, you know, I know we're, we're going to wrap up here in a moment, but, um, I do, I do know you guys are running like pun intended, the Wolf 100 run. Talk about that for a moment and also talk about like other events that you guys have. Yeah. So right now, one of our kind of um, fundraising events, but also just kind of fun things to do um, is run like a wolf. So this is the second year that we've done it. Um, Unfortunately, registration did close two days ago. So those of you listening, you'll just have to look out for next August um, unless you're signed up already. But basically it's just kind of Um, a fundraising opportunity where you sign up. There is a registration fee, which goes back to the Wolf Center, but you can also create a fundraising page. And the challenge is to run, walk, kind of move a hundred miles in the month of August. Um, And this year we've added a couple new things. So we've added a bike challenge, which um, is actually 200 miles. Um, So you can do it on bike this year. Um, And this year we're also racing an actual wolf. So there is um, a wolf in Voyagers National Park in Minnesota. His name is V094. Um, So V for Voyager and then 94 tells you that he's the 94th um, gray wolf collared there. And he's a male wolf um, and he's collared. So they're kind of monitoring his movements throughout the month and seeing, you know, can we make it to hundred miles before him? Probably not. Um, I haven't checked his miles in the past couple of days, but I'm going to guess probably not. He's probably moving a lot, um, but it's really kind of fun, a fun way to raise awareness for, you know, that on the ground study, um, the Voyager Wolf Project. Um, they have a great Facebook page, so definitely check them out. Um, and, you know, getting people to understand a little bit more about wildlife research and why these GPS collars are used um, and just adding a fun little twist, you know, are you faster than a wolf? Um, so we're really lucky that we're able to kind of work with them, um, on different projects and 
you know, work with a lot of scientists that are on the ground collecting data or, um, you know, are just experts in the field. We have um, a scientific webinar library on our website. So if anyone wants to nerd out, there are tons of opportunities there. Um, but it's a really, a really cool project. That's really cool. I was going to join it this year. I didn't get around to doing it. I definitely plan on doing it next year. You can still challenge yourself to a hundred miles. Well, here's the thing thing, is when you have two Huskies, you get a hundred miles within a week. I'll tell you that. Yeah, I believe Um, that. Two little, yeah, Huskies, one for Mm -hmm. one that's not even a year old. So one suggestion, (laughs) make it. Uh, in like October or November when it's cool out and that's scorching Mm -hmm. and I will beat everybody. (laughs) (laughs) I I believe that. I can't walk these guys for miles. Yeah, no, they're not very heat tolerant. No, but I'm sure in upstate New York, it's a beautiful time of year to to do this. It's pretty hot. It's pretty humid. (laughs) Yeah. So who knows? Maybe twice a year, do one in the winter too or something (laughs) like that. But uh, yeah, I'll I'll challenge anybody to a step and walking contest and they got these two with me. I think actually this year, um, we have a ferret competing. I'm pretty sure someone is logging their ferrets movement. Oh, so this is great. I'm not sure if it's been officially opened up to pets, but I'm sure if you were somehow, if you had one of those kind of, um, movement monitoring collars on your dogs, I'm sure they would blow everybody out of the water. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's what, that's really cool. I love yeah. how you guys you know, are, are bringing such a fun cause to this and, mm-hmm. you know, all the proceeds go to the wolves and the conservation center, which yeah. I love. That's why I adopted Nakai. Uh, mm-hmm. we'll certainly look into, into adopting another one here soon. Yeah. Um, so we can go ahead and, and you know start wrapping this up. You've done a, a wonderful, wonderful Thank job. <laughs> Honestly, this has gone way beyond my expectations, and I was already oh. really excited for this. <laughs> you you have such a great background, great education. You brought so many facts to the table and statistics, <laughs> and and you've given such great advice to for anybody who's looking to do what you do and all the amazing things that wolf have wolves have to offer. Um, I couldn't have asked for anything more. And I know we've brought up the whole social media a few times. Now you guys have such a great following. You do (laughs) such a great job. Please go ahead and pub where people can follow you and watch all the webcams. And you guys have really cool apparel and cool swag. So (laughs) thanks. We're always trying to increase that too. Um, So on Facebook, we're just Wolf Conservation Center. Um, So we'll hopefully be the first ones that pop up when you search that. Um, Instagram, Wolf Conservation Center, YouTube, Wolf Conservation Center. I think the only one that's a little bit different is Twitter is we're um, nywolforg at Twitter. Um, So slightly different. Um, And I believe Twitch, it's just Wolf Conservation Center as well. So you could probably just search Wolf Conservation Center or New York Wolf Center um, and you would find us. Um, but yeah, please follow us. We have lots of kind of exciting things. I'm a little biased, obviously, but we have lots of exciting things on, um, all of these platforms, Facebook, we try to share a lot of articles, um, Instagram, we do a lot of live videos and things like that. We do little like story polls, which I always love. Um, so, and then the webcams you can find on our website, which is nywolf.org. Um, and you'll see kind of, um, a meet the wolves option at the top where you can learn about each individual wolf that we care for. Um, and you can look at them on their webcams, which are just so fun. I mean, sometimes I have a monitor on my desk that I'll kind of put the webcams up on and it can be a little bit distracting, but I bet. it's so fun. <laughs> I bet. They must feel like part of the family too, you know? Yeah, we definitely kind of um, feel attached to a lot of them. Um, I mean, many of them, I I would say I barely know because 
um, we try to keep them away from people. And so I'm not really by their enclosures, but um, you know, some of them we've known their whole lives and we've watched them grow up from little tiny pups. So. And uh, to reach out to you uh, specifically, what I did was I actually just went to the website you just popped mm-hmm. and I shot an email as hoping exactly. to be connected with somebody for this podcast and you mm-hmm. responded and good Lord, if other people are educated <laughs> like you are, wow, these wolves are in gray hands. I, well, I thank you. I appreciate it so, so much. I'm going to get this out there as soon as I possibly can. So, you know, people can be educated on mm-hmm. wolves and the conservation and how they're endangered and, you know, get the right, the proper uh, perspective out there yeah. instead of what the media portrays. I feel like that's just super, super important. So yeah, anything I, I can do that. to help, uh, I'm more than happy to do that. So yeah. Dana going, I really, <laughs> really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for, yeah, for doing this. You, and, Ryan. uh, hopefully we can meet someday in person. I will be yeah. up in upstate New York at some point. I would love to, uh, meet up, say hello. And, uh, I'll say hello to Nikai from yeah. beyond the, from beyond the fence, and uh, mm-hmm. maybe I give her a treat or something. Yeah, uh, I can sneak her a treat. <laughs> but uh, Dana, I really really appreciate this, and yeah, uh, say too. thank you to the people at the conservation center. Tell them thank you for everything they do. I, I love it. Thank you so much. All right, it was really nice to meet you, Ryan, and thank you so much for having me on. You too. <laughs> Very special thank you goes out to Dana going for that episode and big thank you to the Wolf Conservation Center. When I reached out to them to create this episode, I figured it would be a pretty neat episode, but honestly, I didn't realize how amazing it would be. So Dana, thank you so much. That was so awesome. Once again, please follow them on social media and please donate or adopt a wolf today. It's such a great cause. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Pursuit of Happiness podcast. You can follow me on Instagram at the Pursuit of Happiness podcast. I will catch you next time on the next episode.